So Greg, um, besides that tour, could you kind of walk me through some of the other memorable P-Funk tours you did? And also, um, what did you do in the studio? You know, and it seems like between studio and touring, I mean, you must have been just busy nonstop. Well, and I we didn't do a lot of studio stuff because I, I really don't know why. You know, it was one of those things where, oh, these guys are young. Let's get Fred Maceo. And finally, 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 when uh, Parlette did Invasion of Booty Snatchers, they said, let's give these kids a chance. So that was my first session with P-Funk was playing on that album or a CD or a tape. I don't know what you call it anymore. But yeah, we went in, put some horn parts down. And, you know, I listen back now, we did sound a lot younger then than we did now, but that was the one that got it all started. And we played um, horns on Glory Halla Stupid. Uh, Parlette had another album called Play Me or Trade Me. Uh, we played on Electric Spank and the War Babies, did one cut there. Um, first P-Funk All-Stars, we played on that. And kind of foggy. It wasn't a whole lot of session work, you know, for whatever reason. I don't know. It was, you know, by the time they figured they wanted some horns, they just didn't feel like it was in the budget to fly the three of us up from Baltimore. And there were instances where we'd be on the road and we'd just stop in Detroit. Hey, you know, we got a day off. Let's record. And I wouldn't hear much after that. So didn't do, for the amount of time we were there, we didn't do a lot of uh, recording with them, but we did do some stuff. You know, I'm, you know, I would think we would do a lot more than we did. I think part of it, Greg, too, is just things slowed down in our studio around that time, too. I mean, stopped doing Parliament and, and Funkadelic Records yeah. shortly into the 80s. So, um, you know, I think timing must have been part of it. Yeah, a lot of it was, you know, it's just going there and record a piece and going and record a piece and then we'll figure out what we can pair that with and, you know, what else we can put it on. But yeah, it wasn't like you went in with, you know, an idea or a concept, a theme and said, okay, we're going to do this record and we're going to need this vocally and this from the horns and this from the guitars. It wasn't that kind of thing later on because it's just a, it's just a different band i mean did, did you get to spend any time with george in the studio sparingly sparingly you know a lot of times we were going there and do horns you know george might show up but for the most part it's just like look i'm on the road with these guys all the time i don't have to be there i know it's going to come out all right but, you know, there were those times where, you know, George would say, yeah, do this. And I said, I want to write something down. He said, no, do it spontaneous. You know, I wanted to sound like you just thought of it. He, he liked the, that raw, spontaneous feel as far as horn parts were concerned. And, yeah, he wasn't there a lot. But when he was there, he would, you know, have something to say. He, he, he had ideas. And, and that's the thing. George can't say, you know, I want this, I want that, and then play it on a piano or whatever. He just, 
hum it to you and say, okay, now I'm not humming exactly what I want, but that's kind of like where it is. Use your expertise to make this happen. So, you know, Benny Gregg and I would bump heads, no helmets, and come up with these um, horn lines. So did you go out on any of the tours in the late 70s when they had, you know, the huge like Motor Booty Affair set up or brought the mothership back or any of that kind of prop oriented yeah. uh, performances? Yeah, we um, we were the touring horn section from 1978 up until 96. You know, like I mentioned earlier, there wasn't a lot of studio stuff, you know, relatively speaking for amount of time we were in the band. But when we went on the road, we were the horn section. So we got on um, at the end of the flashlight tour. And then, of course, the motor booty with the, the, the water and all of that stuff. And, and so and even when um, George retired in 80, we were on a tour then. Um, so yeah, we did a lot of road stuff. Did, did you have a character outfit for the motor, motor booty affair? No, no, <laughs> I didn't. Um, I just grabbed whatever nobody else was wearing. And it's funny cause some of the, they would have a closet, well, these lockers full of costumes and you know, you would sit there and you say, ah, I think I would like to wear that one tonight. And and then you go back and put it on the next night, somebody else got it. So there were some outfits that were interchangeable, but then there were some that, you know, people had wore every night. Like, you know, contrary to popular belief, Gary didn't wear a diaper every show. You know, he would wear like, a, what's this orange leather thing, the pants and a shirt that he would wear sometime. and. And it, but you know, more often than not, it was a diaper with him. You know, he that was his staple. And no, but no, to answer your question, no, I didn't have a, a character outfit. You know, I just grabbed whatever I could. Now, I, I will say this um, in between tours, I was a bicycle messenger <laughs> in Washington, D.C. And one of the things I did when we went back on the road was a lot of the stuff I used to uh, go cycling and made its way to the stage. That's and, where that came from. Yeah. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, that might have been the the forerunner of the, the, the Lycra bike shorts and spandex era of the 80s, because I don't remember anybody doing it before that. So, you know, if I could take credit for something <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so either credit or blame depending on your perspective you know you have a point there <laughs> yeah it could, it, i could see how it could be blamed you know so did you did it matter to you you know was there any difference to you if it was a, a show with a ton of props and all this other kind of organized chaos going on versus just kind of a stripped down basic show it it, it did um I think by the time 83 rolled around, we were not concerned so much with props as we were with the music. You know, we 
we took pride in making that music happen the way it did. You know, we found something crazy to wear, okay, but the music is still gonna come first. And I, I think one of the best examples of that is when we did Saturday Night Live and the band was only like 11 or 12 people, which to a lot of people, that sounds like a lot, but you go see P-Funk, it could easily hit 2025. 20, but we have really scaled it down and it was a like a a well-tuned machine at that point. So that was the only time that I played Fry's Go with that show live was on Saturday Night Live. And um God, who was uh, Angelica Houston was a was the host and and Damon Wayans was that was I think his first time out the gate. So it was a little bit of historical significance there. But I have to go back and look for that clip again. It's been so long since I saw that. <laughs> so, Greg, uh, before we move away from P-Funk a little bit, I wanted to ask you um, if there's one or two other memories from all that touring from the road with, with P-Funk that stand out to you. You know, you mentioned cutting it up with Maceo. But was there anything else that happened, like, you know, power cutting out and continuing playing or, uh, you know, I know sometimes George had to kind of get dragged off stage. What one or two other things really stand out to you? No, you said the power going out. That was one of those things that happened. We lost power in Philly. And we just, well, a lot of people couldn't be heard, but it just, I just started rearing back and blowing acapella. You know, the song is familiar and the whole crowd was singing. And so, you know, we and different band members to take turns leading a song. But, you know, I've heard stories of, you know, people losing the power and some people just start running for the dressing room. Oh, I can't perform without electricity. And there are some people just like, no, we don't need electricity. We can still make a show out of this, even if we don't have any current. And I think of P-Funk and I think of Phyllis Hyman. You know, she was good for that. You know, what song do you want to hear? And she just starts, you know, singing it a little bit. And, and that, and I'm trying to think Saturday Night Live, that was one of the things I remember most and mentioned that a minute ago. Um, Stevie Wonder sitting in singing Knee Deep. <laughs> Where did that happen? That happened at a place called God, it's in, where was that? I think that was, in, it was in San Francisco, but I forgot what the name of the place was. Uh, and, and, and Stevie came through and, you know, the ants and the pants and the need to dance part. He just, he just deboed that section. He just grabbed the mic and just went for it. And it was mind boggling. And that was one of, three times that Stevie Wonder has sat in on a set where, you know, I was playing with somebody. The other two were with Prince and another time with Maceo, but that was the first one. And he just went nuts. Um, another time, I guess the first time I played DC was, was, was great. Yeah. We played a, a funk festival at RFK stadium. It was my first time coming home with P-Funk. So I kind of had a little um, 
nostalgia with that one because like invited all my friends and all the people from the neighborhood and we're hanging out on the side of the stage and you know i still had like a a, a fanboy kind of thing about that more so than i'm in the band you know? and i don't know i probably after this interview and i was like oh i forgot to mention <laughs> I can't think of anything right now. All right. Well, hopefully this won't be the, the last time we talk anyway, so we can always pick it up again another time. But Stevie Wonder. On, on a subject, I remember the very last gig I did with P-Funk. Um, it was in Greenville, South Carolina, December 3rd, 1996. And I just remember looking around and saying to myself, I don't think I'm going to do this again. And it, it, it was it was a sad moment because, you know, I just felt like, you know, that whole P-Funk thing, I wanted it to last forever, and it didn't. And it, it, it kind of hurt. And I, I, and I just remember, you know, get, coming off the stage saying to myself, I'm not going to make a big fanfare. You know, I'm not going to you know, get in a golf cart and ride around the stadium and wave my baseball cap, none of that. I just walked off and I just left. And I remember that like it was yesterday. Why, why did it end, Greg? I just didn't feel like musically and, and from a business standpoint, I just couldn't do it anymore. It, it, it was, it was, not what it was i was used to you know it wasn't i mean all good things come to an end but i just didn't feel like playing in that band as it was at the time it wasn't that monster band i was used to playing with in 83 and 84 and i was like okay you're not going to get that back but you can get something close to it and at the time it's just is I just didn't feel like the my closeness, you know, my dedication was there anymore, and I left. Fair enough. Well, um, so brought up Stevie Wonder, and I think that's kind of a common thread since he sat in with both P Funk and Prince. I never saw the P Funk one, but I was there when he came on stage at Glam Slam in uh, Los Angeles. Yeah, and I think we um, played Maybe Your Baby. And I'll never forget Stevie getting on the keyboard and Prince on the guitar and just seeing Prince kind of looking, you know, like he was looking at his idol and yes. just the joy between the two of them, not to mention the music was just incredible. Those are the kind of moments I, I live for to see as a fan. And, you know, that that's a funny thing too, because, you know, Prince is Prince. He's going to be musically you know, 99 and 7 eighths percent at the top of the musical food chain. So to see him get all gushy over somebody, it was just kind of, it was, it was laughable almost. It's like, oh man, this guy's, you know, he's, he, you know, he's, you see him as an enigma, this persona so much. And then you see something like that, you realize he's one of you. <laughs> and he would get that same look around Larry Graham. You know, and Steve, he'd just be like, Ooh. <laughs> he just, you see him get giddy. And 
you know, you just like to see the human side of people, especially those that don't show it very much. Uh-huh. Yeah. Funny about Larry Graham is I saw him at the House of Blues in 95, I think it was. Great show. And I went backstage and I said, hey, have you met Prince? You know, he's like doing a lot of your songs now. And he said, you know, I haven't, but I'm hoping to real soon. And then right after that, you know what happened. So that was yeah. amazing to me to see what happened once they finally did meet. But um, so, Greg, talk to me about, you know, how you came to get into the MPG and, um, you know, what that experience was like. Well, Prince was in the studio doing some, uh, he was working on a project and he kept telling a saxophone player to play it like Maceo, you know, I need this, I need that. And the bulb went off, boom, why don't I just go get Maceo? So, he uh, comes around and he's checking it on and he decides he wants to ask Maceo, excuse me, join his band. But he also took note of the chemistry that Maceo and I had between us. And he said, and, and bring that trombone player with you. And uh, unbeknownst to me, Maceo is like, yeah, man, you know, and he writes charts, is perfect pitch and all of this other stuff great asset to a horn section and you know he's basically doing a great commercial so that's how i got in was basically on the strength of him wanting maceo and him not uh, prince not wanting to split us up and that went from 2002 to 2009. so if you could contrast or contrast um what was like working for George versus Prince, in my mind, I'm thinking it's kind of like the way Bootsy described uh, James Brown versus George and that, you know, James with the structure and George with, you know, do whatever you do. And I'm thinking Prince is probably a little more in the James Brown mold, but how do you assess that? Oh yeah, yeah, Prince was very detailed, you know, and, but the thing that, that, that Prince did was, it didn't look like like James Brown had you looking like you on a parade. It was formation. You know, you, everybody's doing this, everybody's doing that. You know, you all moved at the same time. But with Prince, it was very detailed, but it didn't look like, you know, we were all, you know, going to at some point just stop and salute the captain, the bow to the queen, touch the bottom of the submarine. It didn't look like that at all. And he had a way of setting things up to make the movements look very natural on stage and, and, and i think that was the difference but yeah very much um uh, a stickler for detail a disciplinarian a, a workaholic it's like you know i don't have anything else to do so i want i want the band to play that kind of thing you know he's i don't know if he ever slept <laughs> to be honest because we would do an after party and leave at like seven in the, in the morning after playing a concert and playing another little lightweight concert and go to a club and jam. And then we'd have to be back at the gig at like two in the afternoon. It's like, oh no, he can't be awake now. He's gotta be tired because he's just laying it all out on the stage, you know, every ounce of sweat energy. And then you get there and it's 145 and he just morphs right out of the floor. <laughs> yeah. 
It, it, it was incredible to watch that. Man, I was like, this guy just eats, sleeps, breathes music 25-7. Or was it 24-8? I don't know. But somewhere over the, the, the normal time frame. Exactly. I mean, that's what it's like when I mentioned earlier about the, the three shows in a day. I mean, yeah. how many artists are still going and outlast their fans? You know, I mean... It's incredible. No, you you don't outlast his fans. No, <laughs> and that's another thing too. I've never seen such a rabid fan base as I have. You know, for those people that that uh, are Prince fans, they're, they're they're something different. It, it, it's just I don't know if it, it's almost like when you're just playing, you know, just starting out and you're some little, you know, kid playing your guitar and you're just like, man, you know, I'm going to grow up and be famous and I'm going to have fans like that. And, and then you get them it's like, wow, I, I, did I sign on for this? <laughs> but, you know, people that will buy a front row ticket to every show for a whole tour and you just don't see stuff like that, man. I, I mean, it's nice, you know, to go to town or, you know, a certain area, you know, in the East Coast, all the cities are two hours apart. You know, every city on uh, between like Richmond and New York or something like that and seeing the same people. But all over the world. And they uh, I don't know, you know, it, it, it must be something about the music that just draws you like that, because I I don't see that anywhere else. Anywhere. Let's talk about the music a little bit, you know, funk in general. So I like to ask guests, you know, how do they define funk music? You know, it's on the one, it's about the open spaces, it's feel, it's all these things. How do you describe funk, Greg? Um, I describe it by not trying to describe it. <laughs> I mean, think about it. If you could really describe funk, wouldn't it be a funk category of the Grammys? I would hope so. But there isn't, because you can't say what is and what isn't. You just know it is when you hear it. And because, I mean, I've heard Art Blakey play funk. You know, you listen to him playing moaning, dun da 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 you know, da-da-da-da-da. It's funky as I don't know what. I've heard some funky country music. But, you know, but you have to really listen to, I don't know, I guess the one thing consistent with funk is an undeniable groove and a fat two and four, <laughs> that to me is funk. Or, you know, even if it's not a fat two and four, something that insinuates that. And But that could easily be Led Zeppelin as quickly as it can be um, Bob Marley, you know. Funk is, you just can't describe it. You know, I, I, I just stopped trying. I just say, you know it when it is. I even like to say that, you know, not you know it when you hear it, but you know it when you feel it. Yeah. And that's one of the ways you know. You can't sit there and say, well, if it has this, 
you know, it's not a recipe. It's not, you know, paprika and jerk seasoning and mix well and you got fun. You just feel it. It's very special. That's all I know. Yeah. I know what funk has a way of making you your head do things that it normally doesn't. And it's, <laughs> it's all of a sudden you listen to that and you just trying to wonder why. What's what happened? What's come over me? It's the funk. Or famously Prince saying the funk face. Yeah, funk face, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Jeff Cherokee Bun, that's funk face. <laughs> So you're with Prince through 2009, and um, you know. So last year, of course, such an incredible loss. Um, would be remiss without mentioning that. Uh, it was heartbreaking to me, like so many other people. Um, Prince meant so much in my life. Um, in fact, you know, I saw Maceo in 2004 uh, yeah. on a break from the Musicology tour at the House of Blues. Yeah. On Sunset in California. And I had a feeling that Prince might show up because they were playing together then. Yeah. And I don't know if you were at that show, but Prince did show up and tore the roof off that place. And yeah. I went home, and not to get too detailed, but it was the night that my son was conceived. Okay. That's what kind of night it was. And I named him after, <laughs> after Mexico. Funk face. <laughs> yeah, funk face. So his initials are MPG, and his middle name's Parker. So. Yeah, I mean, that was an uh, unbelievable experience. Um, but what do you remember about some of the tours in particular? They, that band, especially in 2004, was such a well-oiled machine. It was just like a seven-month blur. <laughs> it was, it was just... You know, and even, you know, halfway through the tour, you know, it had some tragedy striking the band. But for whatever reason, it just didn't slow anything down. It's just like all you had to do was tell the MPG, go. And it's off to the races. Precision, uh, uh, feeling, you know, heart, and, and just technicality, man. Everything just went from start to finish that year so quick, so fast, so hard, and so perfect. And it was like even, you know, without going into any real detail, it, it was even the, the death of some family members couldn't slow it down. It couldn't. It just went on and on and on and on. And and that's a testament to the, the work ethic that went into making that tour what it was. We practiced for two months, 10 hours a day before we went out on the road. So last year, you know, knowing he worked as hard as he did and that sort of thing, were, were you really shocked or was it like, yeah, it's, this is horrible, but maybe not that surprising or, you know, what, how did it affect you, Greg? It, it surprised me because, I mean, I knew all of them years of jumping off of those speakers and them high heels and stuff that was taking its toll on them. But, you know, when I left in 09, I had very little 
you know, contact from that point on. So you hear him, oh, he's doing another project or he would be on TV. I was like, yeah, that's nice, it's cool. But I didn't know it was that bad. And so it kind of surprised me and not in a good way, not in a good way at all. Um, you don't get, if you're lucky, you don't get but one or two of those in a generation. And and I'm just talking about just being able to just listen to or have heard of somebody like that. And I had the, the fortune of being able to play with a guy like that. So, and you know, for all of the time I was there, it was business and it was this and it was that, you know, in hindsight, uh, I, I just feel like, you know, what, was there anything I could do to stop from happening what did happen? And I'm going to, there's nothing I can really do, but I'm going to scratch my head about that all the way up until I'm out of here. Mm -hmm. yeah. you, you see that kind of thing. He's like, I could have done something. And, and I didn't. Did, did it hit home for you even more because you guys, I think, are just two months apart or a couple months apart in your birthdays? Yeah, he was born in June. I was born in September. So, yeah, we were only three months apart. Now, my wife, you know, like I mentioned earlier, you know, she was raised by Rick James and Prince was still in a station wagon opening up for Rick at the time. And she knew him then. And when she saw him years later, she's like, Dad, he really got famous, didn't he? So that was uh, that was a friend of hers. As a matter of fact, you know, he gave us a wedding present. <laughs> um, we, uh, my wife and I got married in 2003, and he gave us a, a nice wedding present. And <laughs> And Donna referred to it as hazard pay because you know, she was, you know, what a hard nut she was to crack, you know, from knowing her back then. But she lost a friend. You know, a lot of people were just like, ah, you know, it's, you know, the, my favorite musician. I love his music. And she, I couldn't, I won't say she couldn't care less about it, well, she could care less about the music, but she was more a friend of his than a fan. So, I mean, even now, it's a year later, and it's a, it's a cloud over the house um, behind his passing, and I don't see it going anywhere. I still can't believe it. I, I, I don't want to believe it, but, um, yeah. but the legacy, man, and what a gift, you know, and oh. amazing. I can I can say and be happy about the fact that I was there. And you know, like I said a minute ago, not many people can say that. So Greg, I only have a few minutes left. There's so much to talk about. I'm gonna to have to have you back to talk about some of those other guys that you worked with. Um, yeah, sure. You can't you can't consult it's hard to consolidate forty years of amazingness in just, you know, an hour, but um, <laughs> <laughs> too, too much Boyer to go around. Um, 
They just get one of those little plastic bags you suck all of the air out of, you zip lock it, and you can store all your stuff all winter. And it's, you know, you can store like a whole foot locker full of clothes and a, a, a nugget this big. And yeah. yeah, we can condense it some kind of way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I wanted to um, definitely ask you, you know, what you're up to now. Um, where are you playing? What are you doing? How can people keep up with Greg Boyer? Um, well, right now I'm in the middle of I'm in a play. <laughs> I'm a I play of all things a jazz trombonist in the twenties Harlem. It's a play called Jazz, and it's going to be at the Baltimore Center Stage up until this Sunday. I've been doing that for like a month, and I have uh, a couple of bands of my own: uh, a jazz band that plays funk tunes and a funk band that plays jazz tunes. <laughs> and I'm still playing with Maceo Parker. We're going on a tour uh, July 7th. We're going to start off in Europe and do some stateside dates and then go to South America, and we're going to wrap it up for a while. So I'm still playing with Maceo and and still writing and arranging um, horn parts and stuff. So... Yeah, I'm, I have a Facebook page, Greg Boyer, and then I have one, Greg Boyer Trombone. is more exclusively music. The other one is more <laughs> And I have a web page, gregboyer.net. Try to keep everything as clean as possible. Um, that and, you know, trying to do all that in the middle of being a husband and a father. <laughs> So yeah, I'm um, I'm alive and kicking, man. And um, and my wife asked me often, "When are you going to retire from playing music?" I said, "Musicians don't retire; they die." <laughs> 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 and you know, music, playing music keeps you young. I, I, I'll say that. You know, if you don't abuse your body, <laughs> you know, excesses and stuff. You know, music has a way of keeping you very vibrant. So I'm always going to make that uh, a part of my life some way, somehow, uh, unless, you know, something physically stops me. Like when I dropped weights on my teeth a couple of years ago, I almost thought I wasn't going to play anymore. But mm. I healed from that. That's another story, too. <laughs> Excellent. I'm so glad that you're still doing it, Greg. I mean, you know, fantastic. You look great, and I'm sure you still sound great. And I look forward to hopefully seeing you when you come through, you know, the um, North Carolina area in the near future. Okay. So uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time out today. Like I said, going to have to have you back. There's so much more to talk about, but I appreciate your time greatly. Yeah, thanks, man. <laughs> it wasn't like I just went up to you and said, can I be on your show? You called me. And so I, I couldn't do anything but say yes. <laughs> That's what I love to hear. Yeah. So. Uh, a sincere thank you to all our viewers and listeners. Be sure to look for upcoming editions of Truth and Rhythm episodes. Catch up with previous installments at FunkinStuff.net and on YouTube, also leading podcast providers. If you're an artist or music industry figure industry, interested in being a guest on the show, like Greg had mentioned, um, email me and uh, we'll, we'll get it done. Also, if you're a fan and there's someone you'd like to see, let me know about that too and we'll try to get it done. So on behalf of Greg Boyer, this is Scott, Dr. Jake Skullfine, saying goodbye for now. Keep on vibrating to the rhythm of the one. Thanks, Greg. One here, two here. <laughs> Absolutely.